Let's pray and ask God for his help. Our Father, we believe that you speak through the Bible. We believe that you are our God and we are your people. And so we pray this morning that we would listen to your word with soft hearts, help us to understand what it says and help us to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been uh, on holiday for the last few weeks and uh, in that time I've had the opportunity to uh, attend a couple of different churches and because my dad's got the foxtail on up in the holiday house in Patonga, I have to admit I've tuned in a few times to the Christian channel as well and I've seen some of the big churches uh, here and overseas, seen quite a few different models of church gatherings. I have to say it's, it's made me question again. What should we be doing in church? What should happen when God's people gather together? What does God want from us? What do you think? You got an opinion on this? I know some people have some very strong opinions on this because you expressed them to me. Uh, what, uh, what do you want to happen in church? What should we be doing when we meet together? You reckon what we do here is about right or should we be more like you fill in the blank? But, but more than what you want, what does God want us to do together? Are there things you would change because you think it would be more in line with God's will for our gatherings? Well, Psalm 95 is a psalm all about God's people when they gather. It's probably written by King David, and scholars guess that it was written for the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a Jewish festival. It's a time when Israel gathered together to remember their history to remember how God rescued them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness in tabernacles, that's why it's called tabernacles, and brought them to the promised land. And the psalm, it tells the kind of thing that God wanted from his people when they gathered, when they gathered particularly for this festival. Two main parts, two main parts to the psalm. In each part, you get a call to respond to God and you get reasons for that response. You get that, two parts, call and, and reasons call to respond to God and reasons for it. So part number one. Part number one. Uh, in this first part, the people of Israel address each other. They call each other to come into God's presence and they tell each other to sing, to, to, to shout, to shout with joy and with thanks to God. And notice the first of the reasons given. It's because God is the rock of their salvation. He's, he's, he's a firm, immovable saviour, the one who did rescue them from Egypt, bring them in their tabernacles to the promised land. So Psalm 95 and verse 1, have a look with me. Psalm 95 and verse 1. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him, praise him with music and song. Israel are to sing and to shout praise to God with joy. Joy. Because he is their saviour. And David goes on to give some more reasons, more reasons why they should joyfully praise God. He says next, God is the great God, much greater than any pagan idol made out of wood, much greater than anything else you could wood. Here is a real God, a great God. Verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. More than a great king, he is the one who made everything. 
He's the one who sustains everything. And so he is the one who owns everything. It belongs to him. Verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Uh, You have to admit, don't you, these are good reasons to praise God. Good reasons for Israel to praise God, wouldn't you say? Good reasons to be joyful. Good reasons to sing. Here is a real God, a great God. A God who made and owns everything. A God who saved his people. Every reason for joy. Uh, But it's not all um, froth and bubble here in this psalm. It's not all beer and skittles, as the saying goes. It's not all happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, Because God didn't just make and he doesn't just own the stuff out there. God made and owns Israel. And so in the second part, Israel call on each other to get serious, to get fair income, to humble themselves before God. To, to The first bit is bow down on their faces before God or kneel on their knees before God. It, it, it's pictures of submission to God, uh, giving him their humble loyalty. Verse 6. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. See the shift? God made Israel. He shepherds and cares for them, and so he owns them. And so they better humble themselves before him. They better submit themselves to his rule. And the psalm then goes on to spell out what that will look like. What, that will look like. what does it mean to be reverent? What does it mean to be humble before God? What does it mean to, to be appropriately his person? Well, it means you do what he says. It means you do what he says to do in his word. For Israel, that meant the law of Moses. It meant listening to the law of Moses with a soft heart, ready to obey, ready to put it into practice Sunday to Friday. They worshipped on Saturday, of course. Ready to put it in practice the rest of the week. You might just notice in the last part of this psalm, the speaker changes. It's not um, Israel talking to each other anymore. Now it is God himself talking to Israel. Uh, So the end of verse 7 comes the introduction. You see the end of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, and then we hear his voice. We hear God's own call to Israel. He says, says, don't be like the previous generation were back in the wilderness. He says, don't you be hard-hearted like them. Don't you be faithless and unbelieving like them don't you be disobedient like your ancestors were back then they missed out on the promised land and if you are like them you'll miss out on my rest too says God verse 8 here is God's voice to Israel verse 8 do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me though they had seen what I did For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath, in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Bit of a sombre finish, wouldn't you say? Well, there's the psalm. Do you get get what's here? You first of all got a call to um, joyfully sing and praise God because he's the great God, the owner of everything, the the saviour of Israel. And then a call to 
to reverently, humbly submit to God, to listen to his word with a soft heart, ready to do what he says, because he is their maker, their owner, the only one who can bring them to rest. Okay, do you get what the psalm means for Israel? Fairly simple, wouldn't you say? Fairly simple. Okay, well now let's think about what it means as Christians. Okay, this is written uh, not directly for us, this is written, uh, well, in one sense, but it's written to Israel, for Israel, um, different religion in one sense, this is for the Feast of Tabernacles, different people, long time ago, different part of the world. What does it mean for Christians? Well, I would say for us as Christians, this psalm is even more true. It applies to us even more than it did to Israel. Uh, let, me, let me work back through it and I'll show you. Verses 1 to 2. See verses 1 to 2 there? Israel call on each other to joyfully praise God, sing to him, thank him. Why? Because he's their saviour, rescued them out of Egypt. Just think about that for a minute. If they should praise God for saving them, well, we've got even more reason, don't we? Is the God the rock of our salvation? He doesn't just save us out of one country and into another country, does he? He saves us from sin and death and hell. When Jesus died on the cross, he bore our sin in himself. He took all God's judgment and punishment through Jesus. We can be brought through this life into not Canaan, but the ultimate promised land, heaven, forever, God's eternal rest. Is God the rock of our salvation? Absolutely. We've got even more reason than Israel to sing for joy to the rock of our salvation. What about verses 3 to 5? they still true, do you reckon? Is God still the great God? The only true God? Is he still the maker and sustainer and owner of everything? Of course he is, isn't he? Still worthy of our joyful, thankful praise. What about verses 6 to 7? Is God your maker? Is he your God through Jesus? Is he the one who shepherds us and cares for us and rules us? What about the very last part of the psalm? Is God offering us his rest? Uh, maybe the psalm's a bit familiar to many of you and it's because it's, uh, we did it together in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 last year. And uh, you may remember from the book of Hebrews that the author showed that the rest that God is talking about is the very same eternal rest that Jesus has won for us. The promise, the writer of the Hebrews says, of entering God's rest still stands. This stuff is still true. And so like Israel, we ought to fall on our faces before God. We ought to humbly bow before him. We should say, you are my king, I am your slave, your servant. When, when God says something to us through his word, we should not ignore it. We should not harden our hearts. No way. We should listen and we should do what he says. Friends, if the Christian message is true, it must change us. Not, not just our minds. It's got to change our emotions. Here is a command to be joyful. It's got to change our wills, what we want to do. It's got to change our actions, what we do. When we trust in Jesus, we are rescued from hell. We are going to live with God at rest forever. Look, things might be tough in your life at the moment. You might be going through a really hard time, but can you really tell me that you sincerely trust that Jesus has saved you from hell and is bringing you to heaven, but you have no joy about it? 
Can you honestly say that? Can you sincerely believe that you will be in God's eternal rest by his grace and then not, not sing about it? Can, can you do that, really? Can you sincerely believe that Jesus is your saviour and have no joy? No, have you got nothing to bring when you gather with God's people? And if this is real, look, we can't ignore this God, can we? We can't treat him casually. He holds our eternal destiny in his hands. We've got to humble ourselves, don't we? We've got to do what he says, surely. Friends, this psalm is for us. This is how we ought to respond to God. So let me come back to the question we started with. Uh, what does God want for us as we gather together? What is he looking for? Now, Psalm 95 is not a complete theology of Christian liturgy. This isn't all there is to say in answer to our question. But here are two significant things that God wants from you here now. He is looking for your joyful praise and thanks and he is looking for your humble obedience. So how are we going? How are we going here at Chatswood Presbyterian Church? How are we going as we gather together as God's people? Do we sing for joy to the Lord? Do we shout aloud to the rock of our salvation? Do we come before him with thanksgiving, extolling him with music and song? Is there a real heartfelt joy and praise and thanks to God here in this place? And do we, do we fall on our faces in reverence before this God? Do we kneel in humble submission? Do we listen so carefully to what he says with soft hearts? Do we obey what we hear? Is there a genuine fear of God here in this place? As I said at the beginning, I've seen a few other church gatherings over the last few weeks. I've watched what they do, and I've thought a bit about what we do. In terms of our practices and traditions and the people here, can I say, I think we have some real strengths. Real strengths. As we meet together and hear God's word read and explained, I don't want to sound immodest, but I think we're getting good, good information. We're getting the sort of information that should move us to joyful praise. We're getting the sort of information that should move us to humble reverence, to obedience. And we've got good opportunity together to respond to God. We do sing songs that are true, songs that encourage our joyful praise and our humble obedience. Uh, we do pray. I think the prayers here are generally thoughtful and appropriate. I can nearly always say amen with a genuine heart. And, and as I share your lives... Can I say, I do see a real soft-heartedness among many people, a, a genuine soft-heartedness to God's word. You take what God says very seriously and you're trying to put it into practice. I think there are some real strengths about the way we do church here. But I'm not here to praise you, I'm here to bury you. <laughs> uh, as I look at Psalm 95, I have to acknowledge there are some real dangers. On the one hand... I suspect that we have a culture here that frowns on displays of emotion. Now, I don't want to be mean, okay? Don't hear this the wrong way. But on the occasions that I've led singing here at church or when I just look up from the guitar and I see you all singing, 
I don't want to be mean about this, but can I say, you don't look very joyful. Uh, you might be singing to the Lord on the inside. You might be shouting to the rock of your salvation on the inside. But I can't see it from the outside. Uh, from the outside, you look like you'd rather be somewhere else. It's like someone handed around a plate of lemons for everyone to suck on or something like that. Look, look am I getting you wrong? Um, are you actually bursting with joy as you sing to the God of your salvation? Or does how you look on the outside, does it actually express what's going on inside? Does it? I guess as I've seen some of the big evangelical and Pentecostal churches, I've noticed this. Look, I don't know if what's going on in their hearts is any different to what's going on in our hearts. But certainly from the outside, they look much happier than we do. Right? Now, I personally am a very conservative person. I'm not given to public expressions of emotion, uh, especially in public. And look, if, if, our, uh, if our culture here of hiding our emotions is something that I personally have contributed to, can I say that I'm sorry? I'm sorry if my personality is hindering your expression of joy and praise to God. I'm not going to put it on for you. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to pretend. You're not going to see me dancing in the aisles or waving my hands around. It just, it's not the way I express my joy. But can I say to you, within the bounds of decency and orderliness, can I say, you have the freedom to express your joy here. You are allowed to smile. You don't have to keep it all locked up inside. You don't have to look so miserable all the time. You're welcome to show joy. Right, there's one danger, an inhibition about expressing joy. On the other hand, I think there's also a danger in our church of a lack of reverence, a lack of genuine fear before God. We're in danger of not taking God seriously enough. As I've watched, I think perhaps what some might call some more old-fashioned church services, I've been very struck by this. Uh, they don't start the service off with, g'day, let's kick off. Uh, they don't let their children run riot through the service. They try to cultivate a seriousness. Now, again, I can't see anyone who wins heart. I don't know if what's going on for someone in a service like that in their heart is any different from what's going on in you and me. But we can't be casual with God. We must not be flippant before the God of the universe, the Lord our maker. God is not our mate down the pub. He is our God and he holds our very lives in his hands. Now again, I acknowledge I'm a part of this. Uh, this morning, Carmelina and I were both on music and our little girl was running up and down the aisle. Just great timing in terms of what I was going to say. Um, and and uh, look, I'm a person, person with no patience for pomp and ceremony I'm sorry if my personality has contributed to a casualness that we may have before God. Again, I'm not going to put anything on for you. I'm not going to pretend. I believe that through Jesus we can come boldly into the presence of God. I don't think we need any pretense. I don't think we need any ceremony. I don't think we need any putting it on. And it's not my plan to get all holy and old-fashioned on you any more than it's my plan to dance around. But do you see, we've got to be so careful. We've got to be so careful. God is not to be messed with. So we look at Psalm 95, I think we can identify some dangers in the way we do things. Maybe a lack of joy, do you think? Maybe. Maybe a lack of reverence, do you think? Uh, but the thing that struck me most about this psalm is that it's not about liturgy. It's not about our order of service. It's not about the forms, the things that we do here in church. What's it about? It's about our hearts. It's about 
the business that we are doing with God as we gather. It's about whether we personally and corporately actually engage with God. You see, we could go for the most out there song and dance routine. We could do somersaults and hang from the fans and roll our eyes on the back of our heads, but we could still not be singing for joy to the Lord of our salvation, not in our hearts. We could go for the most beautiful stone cathedral with stained glass windows and all wear robes and wave incense at each other, but still we might not be reverent before God. We might not be soft-hearted to his word. It's not about the forms we have. It's about what's going on in here. So let me ask you this. What is going on in there? What is going on in your heart as you gather with God's people? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? How are you changing? Do you, can you honestly say this, sing for joy to the Lord? Do you thank him and extol him and rejoice in him? Do do you bow in reverence before him? Do do you listen carefully to the word of your king, seriously saying, how am I going to do this? How am I going to live this? Do you do that? It's not that easy, is it? We know there's good reason to do it. We've got so many reasons to be joyful and reverent, but it does not come easily. And so at the risk of going from the sublime to the ridiculous, I want to give you four very ordinary, very human, very practical things that might help you. Four things that could help you to cultivate joy, to cultivate reverence when you gather with God's people. You can see them on your outline. First thing, first thing, we need to worship elsewhere. Now, I don't mean go to a different church. I mean, make sure that church is not the only place where you worship. We've got to make sure that that church is not the only place where we listen to God's word and respond to him. Listen to this. Church should be where we do together what we've already been doing separately all week. Do, Do you get that? As we come together and as we show our joy and our reverence to God, we ought to be doing the same kind of thing that we have been doing by ourselves and in our families all week. We've got to be worshipping elsewhere as well as together. If church is the only time that you will turn your attention to God, it is always going to feel unnatural. It's never going to be serious joy. It's never going to be fair income reverence. But if you're doing it day by day, day by day rejoicing, day by day revering, day by day, then when we come together, it should come naturally. It should come easily. And the reality is, and I'm sorry, I'm going to address the whinges here now. Whinges, listen. Stop whinging for a second and listen. The reality is there are some things we just can't do together in church. We cannot literally fall on our faces. There's just not room here. Okay? Some of us might not be able to get back up again. But you can do these things when you're at home. So let me say this, let me say this. Particularly to people who come to church here and you're sitting there just seething and feeling so frustrated because it's not the way you would like. Can I say this to you? If you think there's not enough silence before God, for example, here at church, go home and have silence. If you think there's not enough shouting and dancing before God here at church, do your shouting and dancing at home. 
Church does not have to be the full expression of your devotion and response to God. In fact, if it is, you are profoundly impoverished as a Christian. And the fact that we are all together and we've got to get on with each other, it means that we can't do all the things that you want to do. So show your joy and reverence to God the way you want to do it at home as well as at church. And when you're at the church, stop whinging, stop feeling frustrated, make the best of what we do together. Make the best of it. When we worship together, let's make the best of it. Because it's about your heart, not about what we're doing. We need to worship elsewhere than just when we're together. That's point number one. Point number two. Second point. Uh, Church will be a much better experience for you if you prepare yourself. Make sure you read the passage we're looking at before you come. Have a think about it for yourself. Get yourself in the groove. Uh, Those of us who study the passage in Bible study together during the week before church, we've got a real advantage here. Hopefully it'll help us. Uh, Also pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for us. Pray for me, please, that I'll teach what is true. Uh, Also there are practical things. Don't have a late night on Saturday night. The visitors are still there at 10 o'clock. Put your pyjamas on. Say, go home. I've got church in the morning. Uh, Don't sleep in. And get here all in a rush, all flustered. Get up early. Spend five minutes committing yourself to God, asking God to bless us and what we do together. Get to church ten minutes early, not ten minutes late. The starting time is actually half past ten. That means twenty past ten be here. Spend time greeting people, encouraging God's people. Do you get the point? Come prepared. Come, Come expecting that you might actually hear from God. Come expecting that this could be an opportunity for you to sing for joy to the Lord and to bow before him with humble reverence. Come prepared, come ready. Point number three. Our third point, we need to think about how we participate in church. For many of us, so I don't want to be mean again here, and I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to you, uh, but for many of us, we participate in church as an audience of critics. We sit back and we judge the singers and we judge the prayers and we judge the readers and we judge the guitar player and we judge the preacher. But we forget this. You're not the judge who matters. Nobody cares what you think. You are not the judge who matters. There is a real judgment going on in church at this very moment from someone who does matter very, very much. It's not me. God is judging you. God is looking to your heart. He is looking for your joyful praise. He deserves it and he wants it. He is looking for your humble reverence and obedience. He deserves it and he wants it. Friends, the big issue here in church today is not how good the sermon was. The big issue is not how good the music was. The big issue is did you get serious with God here this morning? Did you engage with God here this morning? And this, of course, is the exact problem with what I've been doing for the last four weeks, isn't it? For the last four weeks, I've been sitting back and observing churches when really what I ought to have been doing is getting in and worshipping God myself. What a failure. What a missed opportunity. Final point. Final point. Uh, Don't just walk out of church and forget what happened. Week by week... I take it God speaks to us through his word. We ought to take time to reflect, to meditate on what God has said. 
We need to think for ourselves how to apply what he said to our lives. I can't apply to individually to 170-odd people every week what God's word is saying. You've got to go away and do that work for yourself. You've got to go and think about, well, what does this mean for me tomorrow? Uh, talk about it to people. Maybe at morning tea or at lunch, maybe during the week. Uh, those of us who study the Bible passage after the sermon in Bible study, you've got a real advantage here. You can do this. We need to reflect on what we learn and try to apply it to our lives Monday to Saturday. I'm sorry, like I say, I'm sorry if this all sounds so ordinary. You know, get the visitors out. It sounds very human, doesn't it? Very. But it's just, that is the way we're made, isn't it? That, that's what wrecks it for us, isn't it? It's these ordinary human things that mean we don't really engage. I think it makes a difference. Friends, friends, what should happen when we gather together? What does God want? He wants your heart. He wants your joyful praise. He wants your humble obedience. I reckon he deserves it, don't you? Will you give it to him? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, you do deserve our joyful praise because you are the rock of our salvation. You are the great God, the great King above all gods. You do deserve our humble obedience and reverence because you are our maker, our judge, our shepherd, and the only one who can give us eternal rest. We thank and praise you for your mercy and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, Heavenly Father, that we might know that mercy and that it would fill us with joy and with reverence to you. Our Father, we pray um, with confession to you that we really can be so superficial and so wrong-headed in the way we gather together. So, Father, we pray you'll forgive us and we pray you'll help us to help each other to be godly in this area, but we pray above all that by the power of your spirit you will change us to be people who give you the worship you deserve. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.